Dear Father, we come to you in the name of your Son, grateful that we have been made joint heirs with him in the kingdom. Lord, we commit to you this hour and pray that you will be with us in a special way to give us insight and understanding of the Word of God. We're so thankful, Lord, that we have this book to teach us from which we can learn and grow. We're so thankful that we have the Spirit of God who illumines our minds through the words of your book. So, Father, we submit to you as your students today and pray that you will give us understanding in Christ's name. Amen. You should know by now that we're in the 20th chapter of uh, Genesis. Genesis chapter 20. We've been looking at the account of uh, Abraham traveling down to the Negev and then back over to the uh, Philistian plain where he has uh, encountered the uh, king of Gerar, Abimelech. And uh, there's been a repeat of almost identically of an event which had taken place 25 years earlier in Egypt. And we've looked at this now uh, last week and even two weeks before that. Let's look at verse 7 of chapter 20. Chapter 20, verse 7. <clears throat> God has, well, let's, let's read verse 6 and then 7. Then God to, said to him, this is Abimelech, in the dream, Yes, I know that in the integrity of your heart you have done this. I also kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. That is, of course, Sarah. Now, therefore, restore the man's wife, for he is a prophet, and he will pray for you and you will live. But if you do not restore her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. Last week we looked at some of the uh, significant points here of this particular passage down to verses 6 and 7. And today I'd like to point out that in this seventh verse here, the last verse we just read, that uh, God gave his final command and warning to Abimelech at this point. And I think it's kind of interesting, it's very enlightening to me at least, to note as you look at this particular passage, that even in his failure, in Abraham's failure here, he is still called by God what? A prophet. And he also in, implies that Abraham is an intercessor. Now Abraham and Sarah, in this, in this event, have sinned out of weakness of faith, they succumb to the temptation to act in the flesh rather than acting in faith. It's important to note this was not an act of overt rebellion. They didn't turn their back on God and go a different way because they wanted nothing to do with God anymore. Abraham loved God. Abraham had a heart that was tender towards God. And, you know, we so often use David as, as a parallel. And it really is, I think, applicable here at this point. The same was very true of David. Although he had grossly sinned in the case of Bathsheba and Uriah, overwhelming conviction came to him as a result of the uh, words of the prophet David had yielded to the temptation of sin, temptations of the flesh, but he did not harden his heart to the word of God. And when God's word was brought, and when Nathan the prophet said, Thou art the man, he was smitten to the core. And David turned around and penned for us the 51st Psalm. O Lord, against you and you only have I sinned. Create in me a new or a clean heart, O Lord, he prayed. He was not hard to the Spirit of God. He was not hard to the Word of God. In spite of this, this vile and disobedient action on the part of David, God goes on to call him the apple of his eye. This, I think, is tremendous insight into the mercy of God, into the love of God. You know, you and I have a tendency to, you know, somebody doesn't do something, smack them down, you know? I mean, maybe that's not your tendency, but 
It's, it's a tendency of many. And, and we tend to be vindictive. We, we tend to be uh, people who are judgmental. And we discover in something of the character of God what he wants to be in us. That doesn't mean that we're doormats and wishy-washy and we excuse sin and we ignore sin because God doesn't do any of those things. I think it's interesting to note that God indicated that if Abimelech would obey God's warning, that then Abraham, now remember, Abraham was the one who had sinned, would pray for him, Abimelech, the one who had been sinned against. Now that doesn't make good sense at all, you know, humanly speaking. That the sinner should pray for the one sinned against. That God would hear the prayer of such a one. And that, that Abimelech needed this prayer. But it tells us something of what God knows about us and thinks about us and thought at least about Abraham. Even in his failure, Abraham was God's man. If we are truly regenerated men and women of God, even in our failure, we are still God's person. Abraham, although he had compromised his testimony by this particular action, God knew that in his heart, just like Peter, you know, when Peter denied Christ three times, God knew his heart, Christ knew his heart. He was humble and he was repentant. And so God in his mercy restored Abraham to fellowship just as he restored Peter to fellowship just as he restores us to fellowship if we repent in humility and come to him after we have failed and ask for his forgiveness. God continued to recognize Abraham's authority as both prophet and intercessor. See, he did not lose that particular responsibility before God because of his sin at this juncture. Certainly, Abimelech, at least it would seem that Abimelech had never had an encounter with the Almighty before. And he was greatly in need of prayer. Yes, Abraham had sinned, but Abimelech was a man in sin. He was an unconverted person, as far as we know from Scripture. He was a pagan. And personally, he was greatly in need of prayer. And as a king, he was greatly in need of prayer. And as I was thinking about that, it reminded me of the passage in 1 Timothy that I think we need to be reminded of fairly often because I have a tendency to think we probably neglect this to some degree. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, we read these words at the beginning of the chapter, 2 Timothy 2, 1. Paul says to Timothy, first of all, then, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgiving be made on behalf of all men for kings and for all who are in authority in order that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. I think that means that as we pray for our leadership, we are to pray for their souls as well as for wisdom on their part to lead the country, whatever country it is, obviously, in this case, our country. We need to pray for those who are in authority nationally, locally, statewide, that God will touch their lives. God will bring them to a real knowledge of the truth and that at the same time, God will work in them to cause them to function in a wise way in giving leadership so that we might live a tranquil and peaceful life. God tells us that in this life we're going to have persecution, but he doesn't say by definition that means we've got to live in a chaotic world, that we've got to live under anarchy. Um, peace and tranquility comes from God, true peace and tranquility. And, of course, we have that in our hearts as we are true believers, but it's also possible to have it in our political and social environment as God works within our land. 
And so Abimelech was greatly in need of such prayer, that he might be the leader that God would have him to be. Let's go to the eighth verse of chapter 20 and read the remaining portion of the chapter. Genesis 20, verse 8. So Abimelech arose early in the morning and called his servants and told all these things in their hearing, and the men were greatly frightened. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you, that you've brought on me and on my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What have you encountered that you've done this thing? And Abraham said, Because I thought, Surely there is no fear of God in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she actually is my sister, the daughter of my father, but not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife. And it came about that God caused me to wander from my that when God caused me to wander from my father's house, that I said to her, This is the kindness which you will show to me. Everywhere we go, say of me, He is my brother. Abimelech then took sheep and oxen and male and female servants and gave them to Abraham and restored his wife Sarah to him. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Settle wherever you please. So Sarah, to, to Sarah he said, Behold, I have given your brother, notice, your brother, a thousand pieces of silver. Behold, it is your vindication before all who are with you and before all men who are, that you are cleared. And Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech and his wife and his maids, so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed fast all the wombs of the household of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. To say the least, Abimelech was frightened by this encounter. This was a dream like no dream he had ever had before. He remembered every single little detail of that dream. I mean, it was burned into his mind. Now, all of us have had experiences with dreams. And sometimes you wake up in the morning and all you can remember was that you had kind of an interesting dream, but you can't even remember a single detail about that dream. Other times you wake up and it's kind of like it's still playing in your head. You know, I don't know what the difference is and why that's so. But here he has this dream. And this dream was, of course, not a dream. It wasn't a figment of his imagination. God came to him and God spoke to him and he remembered every teeny little detail of that dream. It was absolutely vivid in his mind. And as a result, he began to immediately obey the commands of God. I mean, this guy was scared. Now, he knew the dream was a reality. And we're not just talking about the fact that in, in the world 4,000 years ago, people were greater believers in dreams than we are. Most of us have a dream and we don't think anything of it. We don't think that that dream is predicting the future. Uh, or even necessarily that it's, uh, you know, uh, what we wished were happening or something, because most of our dreams are really illogical. At least mine are. I don't know about yours, but I do things that are, or, you know, you can't do those things in reality, you know, jump off of cliffs and not get hurt and all kinds of things. Um, at least you always wake up before you land, right? <laughs> it seems like <laughs> maybe you would get hurt. I don't know. But he knew it was a reality. And I think if God spoke to us in a dream like that today, we would know it was a reality too. I don't think we're just talking about a time when they were believers in dreams more than we're believers in dreams. It was so vivid. He knew in his soul that this was real. And then he went to his royal court and he called in his advisors and his counselors and he related them to them the dream in all of its vivid detail. And they had never heard anything like it before in their lives. And they, it says in the scripture, were frightened. You know it's a vivid dream if someone who didn't have it is frightened by it, simply at the telling of that particular dream. And I think they immediately counseled him, you better give this guy's wife back. We're in big trouble if you don't give his wife back. Our, our advice is give her back. I think he was of a mind to do that already without any particular advice from his counselors. Frightened and humbled, 
Abimelech nevertheless was bold enough to rebuke Abraham. Notice what we read in that particular passage here this morning. How have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. He felt that Abraham had, had purposely brought this thing upon him. And it was impacting his whole kingdom, not just him as king. And he expressed outrage that Abraham would do this. But it, if, if you kind of get the feel for it here, it isn't the kind of outrage where he's ready to smack Abraham. It's kind of outrage that's tempered with fear because God has appeared to him. And he knows that this God that's appeared to him is Abraham's God. And so he's outraged, but at the same time frightened. And he's very concerned about his kingdom. He felt his whole kingdom was in jeopardy, not just himself and his immediate family. In the, in the verse 10 here, if you look at that verse, you'll notice he said to Abraham, what have you encountered that you have done this thing? In other words, what's caused you to do this? What have we done to you that you've done this to us? This is his in effect, what he's asking of Abraham here. In other words, you have purposely endangered us. Why did you do that? This was his question. Who is really rebuking Abraham here? Well, it's obviously God. God is speaking through the mouth of this pagan king, and God is rebuking Abraham for what Abraham has done. He's making it very clear that this is inexcusable. The sin of God's people produces a negative witness. And you and I know that we live in a society where the media is going to pick up the smallest sin it can find and it's going to make a big deal about it. Have you ever noticed that when uh, a crime is committed and, and someone is thought to be responsible, they don't necessarily say, and John Doe, a logger, or John Doe, a truck driver, or John Doe, a, a, a newspaper man, they say, but they do say, John Doe, a minister, you know, a clergyman, an ordained minister. They make a big deal about that. A lot of times things happen, you have no idea what the occupation was of the person who supposedly did this, unless the person is a clergyman. Then they make a big point of it. This is a minister who has done this thing. It's a very, very negative witness. And you and I, if we carelessly foster sin in our lives and fail to repent of that sin truly in humility and brokenness as David did recorded in the 51st Psalm, then the world becomes really convinced that we are a bunch of sanctimonious hypocrites. And if that's really the way we're acting, that's what we are really too the same time. We know from the case of Ananias and Sapphira recorded in the book of Acts how God deals with such sanctimonious hypocrisy. God is pretty stern about it. And uh, through Paul, he makes a very strong statement relative to this issue. Let me read for you, uh, you may turn there too, in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And this is kind of an extreme example, but nevertheless, it, it's applicable to what we're talking about. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning at verse 1. It is actually reported that there is immorality among you and immorality of such kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles that someone has his father's wife. And you have become arrogant and have not mourned instead in order that the one who had done this deed might be removed from your midst. For I, on my part, though absent in body but present in spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this as though I were present. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Now from that passage, we can determine that Paul is implying that this person is a believer. 
Because if this person isn't a believer, his spirit is not going to be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. But Paul is committing him, in fact, praying that God will remove him, is what he's saying here, because of his vile testimony, because he's destroying the testimony of the church, that even the Gentiles are saying, yuck, what's this guy anyway? He's a, he's a member of this church, and, and he's, he's carrying on uh, sexually with his stepmother. Gross, in the eyes of even the Gentile world. And Paul makes it very, very clear that the church stands under blame when it does not deal with this, when there's no church discipline to deal with such an act as this. God deals strongly with those things that bring a negative witness to him. And that, remember, was the reason why he punished David later on. He brought uh, three days of illness upon, day, uh, upon the land, plague, upon the land because, you know, we gave David the options and David chose that uh, because he had caused even the heathen to blaspheme uh, against the name of the God of Israel. Well, what does Abraham do here? How does he respond? Well, Abraham gives two excuses for his failure. Um, we always have excuses for our failures. First of all, he says, I was afraid. Remember in, in uh, verse 11 there, he says exactly that. Because I thought, surely there is no fear of God in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Such fear is clear demonstration of weakness of faith. It's, of course, a natural human response. But as we walk with the Lord, more and more our natural human responses are to be submitted to the authority of Christ. And, and we respond in His strength as opposed to responding in human strength. This is, of course, a lifelong process. It doesn't happen overnight. But we begin to learn that as we walk with Him and as we continue to study His Word and trust in its teaching. Now, if God had led him into this situation... God would surely protect him whether or not there was fear of God in that place. However, as in the case of his sojourn in Egypt, the question is, did God lead him here? There's no statement in the beginning part of verse 20 to say, and so God now led him to go down to the Negev, and then God led him to go up to Philistia. It doesn't say that. It just says, so he sojourned. It could be that it was his own choice to make this move and that he didn't consult God at all. He just picked up and went. And therefore, he didn't sense God's leading. And this may be the key to the failure of his faith at this juncture. When we sense that we are not where God has led us to be, our faith tends to evaporate. We have a hard time trusting in God if we feel that we are not walking with God. Uh, probably we've all noticed this. If we know that sin is uh, in our lives and that we're walking in a manner that's not pleasing to God, it's really hard to trust God to carry us through or to deliver us in a certain situation. We tend to feel that we're going to have to do it on our own because God's uh, not real happy with us right now so we can't really trust in him. That, that may have been part of the situation here, even though, from what he says a little bit later on, this whole thing seems to be quite premeditated. But the truth is, God never abandons us. Jesus said, Lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. And he didn't say that to, uh, to the disciples because he knew they were going to be instantly obedient all the rest of their lives. He knew that they would sin, that they would fail, uh, as all of us do. And yet he made that promise, a categorical promise, Lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. And Christ is with us wherever we go. If we're true born-again believers, he is with us. He can't not be with us because we've been born again by the power of the Holy Spirit who indwells us. And wherever we go, he's there. Now, we can be walking out of fellowship, but that doesn't mean he's not there with us. 
But, of course, we do know, we, we tend to lose that inner confidence of his help and protection when we face opposition and danger if we feel that we have not been listening to him and not walking in his way. So first of all, his excuse was, why well, I was afraid because I didn't think there would, was any fear of God in this place. And secondly, he says, but she is my sister. Well, you know, as if that should really take care of the whole thing, obviously. You know, she really is my sister. Now, she's not my uh, mother's daughter. She's just my father's daughter. She's my half-sister, in other words, he's saying there. Well, there's no denying that was true. But there was something that superseded that relationship, and that was the fact that they were married. And she was his wife before, you know, in standing, that was more important than her being his half-sister. Because simply being the half-sister would imply no uh, marital relationship. But being a wife, obviously, uh, sealed the whole thing. Now, it's kind of interesting as you look at verse 13. Uh, it's something that he didn't let on before. And, and he didn't imply this uh, back when we looked at the incident with Pharaoh in Egypt. But in verse 13, he goes on, to say that when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, this is the kindness which you will show to me everywhere we go. Say of me, he is my brother. He's obviously asking his wife to lie, to tell a non-truth in this particular, in, in every situation. Always introduce us, first of all, as brother and sister. Test the waters. Find out if there's any hostility here. Test the waters. We're brother and sister. If things turn out okay, then we can be husband and wife publicly. But first of all, we're brother and sister, okay? This was the agreement that had been made between the two. Well, why? What do you bother to do this for? Well, it seems quite obvious that he wasn't blind. He, you know... He knew that wherever he went, Sarah turned heads, particularly male heads, you know, kind of thing. And uh, this was intimidating to him. And uh, he knew that men would kill for gold, they would kill for jewels, and they would kill for a beautiful woman, too. That, that kind of the grist of stories, isn't it, you know? That's at least what Abraham thought. And so he figured his life was in danger. This, this beautiful wife, I mean, I, I, I'm so happy to have her, and she's my jewel, but she can be the death of me, you know? <laughs> and it seems that Abraham felt it would be better to be alive and apart than dead and apart. You know? And obviously this was the case as far as Pharaoh was concerned as well as as far as Abimelech was concerned. Well, fortunately, God interceded in the case of Pharaoh and God interceded in the case of Abimelech. Isn't it wonderful to know that God intercedes for us even when we are making a mess out of things? Even when we are not walking in God's way, He is working in our lives, and he is working in many instances to right the wrong, not just by convicting us in our spirit of our sin, but by actually trying to, not trying, God doesn't try anything, God does what God does, uh, rectifying the situation. Now sometimes we don't understand why it seems that God just lets it go and allows the, the, the evil to creep up and his name to be blasphemed. But I guess we have to recognize that God is almighty and God can take whatever man wants to deal out. And of course, Jesus was a prime uh, display of that who hung on the cross to the spitting and the jeering uh, of these puny little creatures that he had made and stayed on the cross to die rather than, you know, as, as, we, as the song is, calling 10,000 angels and wiping them all out because he sure could have done that. 
God is strong, infinitely strong. But at the same time, that does not give us license to endanger his name. Once Abimelech and Abraham had gotten matters straightened out here, once Abimelech had gotten it off his chest, and Abraham had more or less humbly explained his excuses for what he had done, and once Sarah was properly returned to Abraham, Abimelech then turns around and heaps gifts on him. <laughs> it is so funny, to me anyway. Why did he do this? Why did he do this? What did Pharaoh do? Pharaoh said, you get out of this land, I don't want to see your face again. And I'll send an armed guard with you to make sure you get out of here. Abimelech didn't do that. Why didn't he? Well, to me, I see, first of all, that Abimelech in the dream had been told by God that Abraham is a prophet of God. Now, whatever Abimelech understood, he understood what that meant, at least in part. He knew that this was God's representative and this was a powerful God. This wasn't one of the little pagan statues that he was used to worshiping. This, this was a God who was able to close wombs. This was a God who could strike terror into the heart of the man who received simply a dream. He was told that not only will, is this man a prophet, but he will pray for you. He, he understood something about prayer. Prayer is an old, old concept. Christians aren't the only ones who pray, and, and we're aware of that. Uh, all over the world, people pray. People pray to the spirits. They, they pray to trees. They, they pray to some converging uh, line of force, you know, or whatever they pray to, but they pray. They have a sense of communing with that which is greater than they are. Some say, well, it's the ascended master I'm communing with, you know, or whatever. Even this man understood the importance of prayer, not as we would, but at least he knew it was important. And it was obvious that Abraham's God was very powerful and that this God still thought highly of Abraham in spite of what Abraham had done. So he one of the reasons he did this was he wanted to stay on the good side of Abraham and of his God. I will show this God that not only will I obey what he said, but I'll go beyond and I'll pile presents up on them. Sort of almost like a contribution to the God, uh, you know, a, a payment to the God that had spoken to him in a dream. Secondly, I think the reason he did this was that Abraham was far greater vis-a-vis -vis Abimelech than he had been to Pharaoh. Pharaoh was not intimidated by Abraham. Pharaoh had a mighty kingdom. Pharaoh had a mighty army. But Abimelech was just a little petty king. He just had a little city-state here, probably just maybe a few hundred square miles that he ruled. And, and so this Bedouin sheik was a threat to him. With his armed force, he was someone who could actually possibly even overwhelm Abimelech's army. Abimelech may not have had an army to speak of, you know, just a few dozen men. And so he was afraid. And I think that's part of the reason he gave uh, Abraham permission to settle anywhere he wanted in the land. Out of fear and out of a desire possibly to have Abraham as his ally. I can use this guy's forces if I get in trouble. And if he's my ally, he'll join forces with me maybe. And, and who knows, maybe he had heard of what Abraham had done to Chedorlaomer. Maybe he knew about that. Certainly such a, a word would have spread rapidly. Remember in those days, they had no television and no telephone and none of these other things. And so any little thing like that was exciting news. It would spread. And of course, it would be embellished as it was spread. And who knows, uh, Abraham might have been known as a mighty warrior by now. And, and Abimelech was intimidated. Anywhere you want in my land, you may settle. <laughs> Glad to have you as a friend and an ally. Hope your, your God is happy, you know, with, with my <coughs> gifts to you. In addition, we discover in this particular passage that more than the animals and more than the servants, that Abimelech gave to Abraham, he also gave him 1,000 shekels of silver. 
Now why? This was a very, very specific thing. This particular gift was to demonstrate that he had no claim upon Sarah and that she had done no wrong in this episode. This 1,000 shekel gift was vindication money. It was to vindicate her honor. It was to demonstrate that she was honorable in this whole thing and that she had not been brought into any kind of a sexual relationship with Abimelech. She was kept apart. She was kept pure. This vindication money was, as they would call it in those days, a covering of the eyes. That is, it was a seal of amnesty, blotting out the whole event officially so that it would never be there to hang over the relationship between Abraham and Abimelech. Most of us are aware that the President of the United States it has the power to grant pardon and or amnesty. Pardon is, is very different from commutation. To commute a sentence is to simply say, well, this person is guilty, but we feel he's spent enough time in jail for the crime, so we're letting him go free. Pardon is to say this person never committed the crime, and therefore he is to go free, officially. Now, whether the person really did or not, but on the books, a pardon means it's gone. It's, it's erased. You cannot be considered to have been a felon, or, or that is not on your record if you have been pardoned. It's purged from the records. And amnesty is the same thing. Amnesty is to erase all record for a group. For example, when the Civil War was over, the President of the United States granted amnesty to all of the rank-and-file soldiers of the Confederate Army. Now, the officers, that was a different story. But to the rank-and-file soldiers, uh, amnesty was granted, which meant it was as if none of them had ever raised a weapon against the United States government. And they could never be officially prosecuted for having done that because it's as if they had not done it. So what he is doing here is officially blotting the whole episode off the books. Abraham has not done this. Sarah has not done this. I have done nothing. It's as if it never happened. So they could go on being friends and develop an alliance as if it never happened. That's the meaning of the 1,000 shekel gift here. Now, what is a shekel? Well, if you go to Israel today, you'll know what a shekel is. It's the unit of money that they use in modern Israel. But the shekel was a very common unit of exchange in those days in the Near East, particularly in this part of the Near East. And, you know, this is going way back in time. And we're talking about almost 4,000 years ago. So it's really hard to nail this down. But apparently, it was a unit of weight that ran between a third and a half uh, of an ounce of what we would call an ounce. They didn't have ounces, obviously, in those days. They had a different unit. But the shekel was that unit of weight. And, uh, of course, depending on the purity of the silver, that 1,000 shekels would translate today into somewhere probably between two and $3,000 in terms of the value of the bullion uh, in, our modern, in our modern day. So to us, we'd say, well, that's not really that big a gift, is it? No, but you have to remember that money bought a whole lot more in those days. What's that? You take it? <laughs> yeah, I, most of us wouldn't throw it away, saying, oh, pocket change, you know. But nevertheless, it probably would have purchased, as best as the, those who have studied this have been able to determine, it would have been the purchasing price of 500 head of sheep. I don't know how much sheep shell for, sell for today, but I'm certainly sell for more than $2,000, I would think. Anybody know how much a head, I mean, a single sheep would sell for today? Rachel, would you know? $100. $100. A, a what? A pound. They're sold by the pound. $100 a pound? No, not $100. A pound. Oh, under a dollar a pound. Alive? <laughs> well, how much does a sheep, an average adult sheep weigh? 170 pounds. So, yeah, it would be at least over $100 a, 
A sheep, right? Okay. So 500, 5,000, 50,000, you know, $50,000 equivalent today. So, you know, we get a little feeling uh, that this is a more significant gift now as we look at it that way than it would be for us to just simply say, I gave him 2,000 bucks, you know, kind of clear the whole air here. 50,000 bucks. <laughs> That's a little bit uh, more significant. It's kind of interesting because later Abraham would buy a field and a cave within that field for only 400 shekels. That's a big hunk of real estate for only 400 shekels. <laughs> so, you know, you kind of get a feel. And we know that it's not just a puny little thing. We know that what he, the, the, the cave of Machpelah wasn't just a kind of a teeny little hole in the ground, you know, about a tenth the size of this room because they have built a huge structure on top of it. Of course, they don't let anybody go down into the caves uh, underneath, even though they have lowered cameras to try to get a feel for what's down in those caves. But we're talking about a fairly sizable piece of uh, real estate here. So th this helps us to understand a little bit better, maybe, the value of this uh, unit of measure. By the way, we're not talking about, when it says pieces of silver, we are not talking about coins. They had no coins in those days. Coins were not invented until the 7th century BC. There was no coin before that particular time. So we're simply talking about units of silver, probably granular, maybe ingots or of some uh, little wedge or something, but not coins as we think of coins. As God promised, Abraham prayed for Abimelech and for his royal court, and the Lord healed all of those who had been afflicted. As we read in that uh, passage, for the Lord had closed fast all the wombs of the household of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. We're not talking about something that transpired over a matter of just a few days or a few weeks. This is obviously something that involved several months. It had to involve several months, otherwise they wouldn't have known that they weren't being productive, you know, because it takes a while to know you're pregnant and for it to, you know, be anything unusual for a few days or a few months to pass without a pregnancy occurring. So we're talking about a period of time here. And I think that probably Sarah was in Abimelech's harem for several months here. I think so. I think that's implied here in this passage. And so you can imagine, just as when we talked about the situation with Pharaoh, there must have been a sense of loss that had to develop in each of their minds and hearts. I think Abraham and Sarah were a fairly close couple. And they cared for each other deeply. And to be separated as they were, and to be remembering, we did this once before, you know, and it wasn't good then. Why are we doing it again? God, I think, had time to talk to them, to minister to their hearts at this time. Now, the question is this, as I see it. This happens. Why does God allow this event to be recorded in Scripture? Why does, I mean, everything that happened in Abraham and Sarah's wife is not, and, and Sarah's life is not recorded in Scripture. We don't have a moment by moment, blow by blow, a description of their lives. We just have kind of a point here and a point here and a point here. Sometimes we jump 10 years before we have anything. Why does God record this? Especially since it's already happened and been recorded once. Why do we go around again? Why does he include it here? <coughs> Was that so that later generations could say, they did it, so can we. I don't think so. God doesn't record anything in Scripture to excuse our sin. God's purposes are always redemptive, and we need to always remember that. God's purposes are always redemptive. He reveals the consequences of sin while at the same time demonstrating His mercy. Whatsoever you sow, you shall reap. But I am a God who hears and answers prayer and heals hearts and delivers from the jaws of death and sin. They had twice given the heathen an opportunity to reproach the name of God. And yet God never abandoned his chosen ones, and he never will. 
Let's look at a couple of passages, both old and new, that reinforce that. And this first passage in Psalms directly alludes to this event. Psalm 105, verse 8. He, God, has remembered his covenant forever, the word which he commanded to a thousand generations, the covenant which he made with Abraham, his oath to Isaac, then he confirmed it to Jacob for a statute, to Israel as an everlasting covenant, saying, To you I will give the land of Canaan as the portion of your inheritance. When they were only a few men in number, very few, and strangers in it, and they wandered about from nation to nation, from one kingdom to another people, he permitted no man to oppress them, and he reproved kings for their sakes. Do not touch my anointed ones, and do my prophets no harm. Specifically referring to the events involving Pharaoh and Abimelech and Abraham and Sarah here. God did not abandon them. He was with them in it all. He had a plan, and that plan was to transfer the blessing from Abraham to Isaac and from Isaac to Jacob, from Jacob to Joseph, and on down through the centuries until the blessing would be all of ours through the coming of Messiah. Second, or First Peter. This, of course, is a passage we've read so many times. But it helps us again to understand God's commitment to us. First Peter 2.9, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. If for, for you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Taking the whole account of the Old Testament, compressing it in these two verses and applying it to us. We are a royal priesthood because we have been chosen and brought out of darkness into God's marvelous light that we might serve Him today in the world in which He has placed us. We did not know mercy before, but once we became children of God, we knew His mercy. So did Abraham and so did Sarah on a repetitive basis. God has allowed us to see the failure of Abraham, who is called the friend of God. The failure of Moses, who is called the meekest man who ever lived. The failure of David, who is called the apple of God's eye. Not so that we will feel it's okay to sin, but instead that we will not be discouraged when we fail so that we give up because he wants us to know his mercy above all. He wants us to know that he hasn't given up on us, even though he has every right to do that. Let me just quickly read through that passage on your outline in Romans. There's so much, as you well know, in Romans that helps us to understand where we really stand and why. And... This, this passage, I think, is really helpful relative to this concept here in Romans 6.1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace might increase? Obviously, the more we sin, the more God's mercy will be poured out and the more He will be magnified, right? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into His death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death in order that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so that we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him, that our body of sin might be done away with and that we should no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, 
having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died once, he died to sin once and for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God in forever and ever. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you may, should obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body as sin, to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. That speaks volumes as to why God dealt with Abraham the way he did and why he wrote it down for us all to see. And David and Peter, he could have easily just left that whole episode of Peter denying Christ three times clear out. And we would have thought all the more highly of Peter, maybe. Well, God is not interested in how high we think of Peter. He wants to know how high we think of him. And the more highly we think of him, by the tremendous mercy he showed to a man who deserved no mercy, even as we, if we're honest, recognize that we do not deserve mercy. God wants us to know that our sin does damage our witness. It does hinder our communication with him. And it does retard our growth as a child of God. But it does not cancel the act of grace by which we became a child of God in the first place. Our salvation is not in jeopardy when we sin, but our usefulness to the kingdom of God is in jeopardy, our personal joy is in jeopardy, and our rewards at the judgment seat of Christ are in jeopardy. And in the midst of it all, we see a God who loves us and a God who is merciful and a God who never gives up. Well, next week we will begin the 21st chapter of Genesis.